W233AH Monticello. Welcome to the local edition. News and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. we got a great show for you tonight. The committee, the committee for Equity and Justice, which is part of SALT, kicking off a round of community conversations on Thursday evening. Judy Balaban and Adrian Jensen will be joining us in the second half of the program. First, a big update on probably the biggest story that we've been following in New York State here. The humanitarian crisis in New York State due to the influx of migrants. It's been worsening, but the state's $25 million solution is progressing very slowly. Andrew Giamboni, a journalist from New York Focus, has conducted a detailed investigation of the program, uncovering numerous logistical challenges and really strict eligibility criteria has led to the situation that's right there in the headline. Despite emergency, New York has resettled zero migrant families through flagship programs. Zero families. Andrew Giambroni, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, so what, what has led to this migrant relocation assistance program you know, which they started up, I guess, last spring, not being able to successfully resettle any asylum-seeking families from New York City shelters uh, to housing in other parts of the state. Based, you know, based on your reporting, what have you found? Sure, um, you laid it out really nicely at the top, Jason. Um, it's a combination of factors that are frustrating this program from getting off the ground. It was launched this past spring thanks to an investment in the state's new budget, which was approved in May. Uh, and then by the end of June, the state signed contracts with a group of local nonprofits to implement the program and help migrant families get housing and, and some of these services across the state. Um, but my reporting found that because of some of the bureaucracy, some of the inherent challenges with setting up a, a new program like this, um, that requires a lot of coordination between the state, nonprofits, as well as New York City, um, and then additionally, uh, some eligibility requirements as to who is able to apply for this program that are pretty strict. Um, all those reasons are based on my reporting, hobbling it from the, from this inception. Wow. Um, and, and so, I mean, and part of the story, and we, we've been covering it as well as we can here, um, you know, but. But part of this is you're considering the strain uh, on the New York City shelters and the overall impact in the city um, when you're discussing the importance of relocating migrant families, uh, uh, especially in terms of saving taxpayer money. Uh, what, what, what can you tell us about this? Yeah, that's that's definitely a major consideration that state and city officials have right now is, you know, the longer this crisis goes on, the more and more. Uh, asylum seekers and families enter New York City shelter system um, and some of these humanitarian resource centers that the city has set up, that's just going to lead to a greater cost for taxpayers in the long run. Uh, I think some of the latest estimates that the city has provided is 
um, that it's about $380 per day to take care of asylum households or asylum-seeking households in New York City. Um, and so there's a huge uh, economic or financial cost to the city. The mayor has said it's looking to be about $12 billion total over the next few years. Um, so that does segue into this program that I reported on. Uh, part of the intent is to help this, you know, the, for the state to help the city relocate families that are staying in New York City shelters to permanent housing in other parts of the state. Um, and the hope there is to basically get them into housing for a full year, provide them with counseling and other supports um, to help them find jobs and to find um, their footing in these new communities um, and then be able to support themselves, uh, you know, as, as any other person would in, in New York. Yeah. What, what do you think about what the governor, you know, has been calling for? Is that, you know, in terms of, you know, basically, basically trying to get, the Biden administration uh, or, or someone to to say, let these people work. That's been her one of her main refrains. Let these folks work. I mean, what what do you think of, of that approach? Is that is that for show or is that a practical approach? I think it's um, practical in the sense that it would really ease the burden on New York City and New York State um, that just this big influx of migrants is is causing in this, it's complicated. I don't think everybody understands this, but uh, federal law says that people who come to the U.S. and seek asylum have to wait 180 days before they can receive work authorization, a work permit from the federal government um, to be able to have a, a legal job. Of course, some people work off the books or under the table, um, but you know, because of that half a year required waiting period, that means you have a lot of adult asylum seekers um, not able to to gain employment and therefore be able to make income to pay for rent and to pay for food and everything else that they need. Um, and so I do think the governor's uh, advocacy around work permits, getting those expedited by the federal government, um, is pretty supported by most Democrats in the state, including the mayor, Eric Adams. Um, they've all been calling for for accelerated work permits for a while now. And I think recently we've even seen some business groups, uh, you know, kind of chamber of commerce type parties also join those calls to say we need more workers or facing labor shortages after the pandemic and because of longstanding issues as well. And so the faster we can get asylum seekers to work, the better it is for us and the better it is for the city and the state so that, you know, there aren't so many people lingering in, in shelters. It's tough to throw numbers at people on the radio. And I mean, you really, uh, again, the, the website is nysfocus.com and the article is up uh, on our own website, wjffradio.org. And what you, you can't see on the radio is this amazing graph that just, you know, visually shows you what this is in terms of the program capacity is supposed to help 1,250 families. 368 families have been referred. 129 are in case management. Zero families located, which, again, is the headline. But when you actually see, like, the graphical representation, it really drives this home. And it's just, I mean, you you know, there's an allocation of $25 million in funding for this program. Supposed to say serve up to 1,250 
families. Okay, um, they've got four, four contracted nonprofits working across five counties, according to your reporting. Those counties are Albany, Erie, Monroe, Suffolk, and Westchester. You know, is, is this going to happen? Is this going to positively impact the situation of these migrant families? Well, I think that's the, the million-dollar question, or I guess the $25 million <laughs> $25 question. $25 million question, yeah. Um, you know, it's only been a few months since this program launched, though at the same time, um, it is part of this emergency response that the state is making to the migrant crisis. That's why we have seen Governor Hochul um, declare uh, an emergency an official state emergency related to this growing situation. Um, and yeah, like I said earlier, it really depends on how well the state and city are able to coordinate um, and work with each other. You know, to my knowledge, there are still zero families that have been officially relocated or resettled through this program. The state is getting more referrals and is putting people, more people into case management since my story came out. Um, but it's, it's not in huge numbers. And, uh, yeah, so far there hasn't been much concrete progress. Unless I've got my timing wrong. I think also since your story came out, you know, Mayor, Mayor Eric Adams is saying essentially this situation's killing New York. Got a lot of criticism for that. I know you might not be comfortable commentating, but when, when you heard that from the mayor of New York city, what, what were your thoughts? Well, I mean, my first thought as a reporter is that this is going to make the headlines tomorrow and, you know, be the, yeah. <laughs> the lead story for, for New York City media, which sure enough it was. Um, I think, you know, if you dig a little bit beneath the mayor's comments and, you know, how they were put in context, um, he has said similar things before. Um, you know, this wasn't the first time where he's really warned uh, voters often at community events. This one in particular was on the Upper West Side. It's not his political base by any means, but, you know, he's really ringing the alarm bell about the impact that the influx of migrants is having on New York and is likely to continue to have on on New York for the next few years, all else being equal. Um, And yeah, I think, you know, his audience or or one person he has in mind is is President Biden when he's making remarks like that, just to um, make plain to the federal government that New York City needs more federal assistance, not only with work permits like we saw, before, like we were talking about earlier, but also um, finding new sites for migrants to be able to stay at um, since New York City shelters are, are largely at capacity and financial assistance um, and just really helping coordinate um, what the mayor has called a decompression strategy um, so, yeah, I guess I wasn't entirely surprised by the mayor's remarks, but, you know, they definitely made waves for sure. Well, and I'm glad you, I asked you that because you're able to put it in some context there where you who you think uh, he was trying to reach. Uh, and that that's an interesting perspective. Also, I misquoted the mayor that the line was uh, uh, will destroy New York City. The migrant crisis will destroy New York City. Uh, Andrew, we've only got two minutes left. Um, but in that time, I was wondering if you could just tell me uh, how you uh, got interested in this story, your motivation uh, to investigate this. Sure. Um, well, I'm based here in New York City in Brooklyn. That's where I was born and raised. Um, I'm very invested in, in issues that are facing the city and facing the state. And I've been following the migrant crisis in particular um, for the past year and a half. Um, this story jumped out at me when I saw a recent press release from the governor's office 
a few weeks ago in August, um, and it was almost, you know, a, a throwaway paragraph or a short paragraph where they mentioned this migrant relocation assistance program um, and said it had $25 million in funding, but at the time, only 17 families had been determined eligible and interested, um, and so that 17 number really stuck out to me and, you know, got me thinking, well, you know, that doesn't seem like a lot, what's going on there, and so... From that, I started filing some freedom of information law requests, which to the state's credit, um, they fulfilled very quickly and with minimal redactions like we'll get sometimes when we do those sorts of requests as reporters um, and was able to piece together, you know, who is running this program, which nonprofits are involved and, you know, ultimately look at what the outcomes so far are on. Um, it is still early days and I'm, I'll be continuing to report on it uh, in the coming weeks and months. Okay, so if there's new developments, you'll you'll give us an update then. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, I I really uh, I I just want to say thank you for doing this kind of reporting because again, there's a there's a lot of talk about this issue, but there often isn't substance. You put some real uh, facts and numbers behind that, so thank you for filing that that those FOIL requests and 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 getting this info for us. The article is: Despite state emergency, New York has resettled zero migrant families through flagship program. It's from New York Focus. Uh, their website is nysfocus.com, and you can see the article at our website, wjffradio.org. We've been talking about, we've been talking to the reporter who wrote this story, and it's been a great conversation. Andrew Giambroni, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jason. Okay, we're going to take a break. Coming up, when we come back, we'll be checking in uh, with the Committee uh, for Equity and Justice and talking to uh, Adrian Jensen and Judy uh, Judy Balaban. So uh, do stay tuned for that. And a reminder that uh, coming up tonight, we've got the Music Emporium and Mr. Kusar Grace starting at uh, 7 o'clock. And before that, we've got The Daily from the New York Times. So do stick with us here. We've got more local edition coming right up right here on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. Stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Treatment takes time. It also gives time back. My addiction does not define who I am, just as my medication does not define my recovery. All you have to do to change your life is change your mind. It is up to you to figure out what is best for you. Your goals. Your life. Your treatment plan. Staying on medication for opioid use disorder is your path to recovery. Learn more at HealTogetherStories.org. Welcome back to the local edition. News and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. The Committee for Equity and Justice is a subcommittee of SALT that Sullivan Allies leading together. And this committee meets every month at the Crawford Public Library in Monticello to address important topics and trying to build community unity through community conversations. Patricio Rabio spoke to Judy Balaban and Adrian Jensen about the upcoming meeting that they're having this Thursday at 6.30. And Judy starts off explaining how these community conversations got started. We've been around for a couple of years. And initially, we were having monthly um, 
community conversations on Zoom, and they really focused on trying to gain an understanding of what was happening pretty much with our Black community members around the country. You know, so what we were doing is we were reading books like um, uh, Kendi's book, How to Be a Non-Racist. And then different members of the committee would facilitate a discussion. They would choose a reading. After we finished that book, they would choose a reading that um, that would help us understand what was going on in this country with our, um, you know, with our diverse, well, how, do, how do I put it, really with our black community members and, and try to really figure out how we can become allies in the fight to make this a more equitable um, and inclusive country. Um, and, you know, that is really a, uh, you know, tall order. We've got a lot, a lot to do. You know, we did that for, I don't know, maybe a year or so, and then COVID was over, and uh, we decided to change that a little bit. And um, so the focus now is really on trying to bring people together who have various perspectives. So what we what we're really hoping to do is bring people together of different ages, different races, different political uh, viewpoints, and get deeper into what we have in common. You know, because basically we we have our values and our opinions and our perspectives based on you know things mostly our parents while we were young, what kind of education we had. But once we can understand our perspective and the perspective of other people, we often find that the values we have are the same. We want to be healthy. We want to be happy. Um, You know, we want our children to be safe. You know, uh, we want to have enough to eat. So that's kind of where this um, you know, this focus of these conversations is. And once we get to the point where we don't see people as the other, but we see them as, oh, you share this value with me, we will have so much more power to make the changes that we want to make. You know, whatever they may be, if they're, you know, local in the neighborhood, local in the town, local in the county, in our country, whatever it is, we will have that much more power. So that's kind of where that came from. And I know and love Adrienne, um, who I know through the Hello Human Rights Commission when she was the director there and uh, invited her to join us because, um, I have a lot of respect for her and um, with the power that she has. And also Kathy Aberman, who um, I've known through the first iteration of the Human Rights Commission, um, is a community activist uh, extraordinaire. So the three of us kind of facilitate it. Absolutely. Uh, Adrian, if you want to expand on that, on these community conversations and some of the things that have come up when when the community has come together and and everyone has discussed this in an open forum. Well, I wanted to expand, I, I wanted to uh, just just add in um, the the book that, that uh, um, Judy was thinking about, and I know both of us get uh, 
you know, these, these kind of interviews are, are frazzled because we're, you know, typically uh, one-to-one thinking, feeling people <laughs> uh, is uh, Ibram Kendi's uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, and, the, you know, I guess one of the things I wanted to say was um, we have all of these artificial demarcations of of who we are. And uh, we like to believe, I think collectively, obviously not everybody, but we like to believe that Within certain cultures, we're all the same. You know, all black people are the same. All white people are the same. All Christians are the same. All Catholics are the same. Um, all people living in rural communities are the same. All firemen are the same, you know, what have you. It's really not true. And so even within, if that were true, then I think that there would be, you know, every community, no matter how homogenous, would never have any sort of uh, conflict. And conflict is something that's absolutely normal in uh, in our humanity. And so kind of focusing, I think that it is important because we do live in a world where we uh, focus on those demarcations. But at the end of the day, even within any of those communities that I just mentioned, uh, if there's a necessity to understand each person. Each person is beautifully unique. And it's kind of scary to be unique, uh, even, like I said, even though each of us are, because we really depend on society, like over, you know, thousands of years, society to organize um, ourselves to, to move forward. And so what we're faced with is these situations where we've organized ourselves in different groups. Um, we make decisions based on those groupings, organizations, and and they're not always benefiting us. And so we're looking at, like, who are each of us as a person and what do we like and dislike and how can we figure out how to uh, take the appropriate, uh, you know, bits of this and that and create some sort of environment, some sort of community where people feel safe and heard and 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 can thrive and so that's really what we're doing so that that was what I wanted to add and then in terms of uh conversations Mm -hmm. that we've had we've really just started this particular conversation and we're looking at what what makes a good neighbor what we what what are we looking for in a good neighbor, um, we took a uh, a scenario, like a, a fictional scenario, and discussed, you know, because people came up with certain things. You know, some people mm-hmm. said, we, uh, I, I like to be alone. I don't want to be bothered. I want to be on my property and not be, be bothered by other people. And some people said, I like to be amongst other people. Some people said, if, you know, you're, neighbor is making a lot of noise, uh, you know, just, you should just be tolerant. And some people said, no, you know, can't do that. I, I came here for peace. Um, and so we're creating some scenarios also to discuss uh, because it, sometimes things seem very kumbaya, you know, uh, discuss it without it having a real, um, a real focus. And so we're creating that and, and discussing that as well. 
Judy, did I leave something out? I'm sure that I have left quite a bit out there. No, I think, well, no, I, I think you, you know, you explained, you know, what we're doing and we're we're kind of dividing up into small groups so that people have an opportunity to really talk to each other, you know, groups of, you know, maybe four to six people. Um, and, and then we share that with the, with the larger group. You know, we share the ideas that came out of that with the larger group. Um, um, and I also wanted to put a shout out to the uh, Monticello Library because, you know, they're uh, mm-hmm. a partner in mm-hmm. this. And we're really, you know, we're really, uh, we're really growing. We're just starting. This will be our third conversation. People don't have to come to all the conversations. You know, the first conversation, we had about a dozen people. This one in August was a little bit less, I think, because people were on vacation, and um, they let us know that, and I'm sure they will be back. Um, right. And, you know, the idea is, you know, is to to have a diverse, diverse group of people so that we can have a better understanding of where people are coming from. Um, and, and do you mind if I add something in there, Judy? No, always go right in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, another thing is that action steps are always so important, uh, but they typically should not come until you uh, understand where you are, you know, the situation. And so that's really what we're doing right now is understanding where we are, where we are as a community and, and what's important to us and what works and what doesn't work. Um, as individuals, and then, you know, we will begin to create uh, more, com- we have homework after each of our uh, um, meetings that we create, but more active work um, I, I see coming down the line. I agree. I mean, I think right now we are creating um, a, cr- a community, you right. know, um, and, that's, and that's the first step. Um, you know, in, in this project, I mean, you know, some there's no right or wrong thing, but I think the focus of this is for us to gain a better understanding of our neighbors, right? Um, to find our commonalities, and then to develop action steps. So those who are out there now listening to this and agreeing with what everyone is saying and wants to join in this community discussion, how can they? How can they? be part of this community discussion at the Monticello Library? Well, um, they can just come on Thursday <laughs> to the library from uh, starts at 6.30 uh, till 7.45. It's not long. We may, depending upon, um, you know, the group and how we progress, we may make it a little bit longer. Um, and uh, the library has requested that people register on their website which um which is quite long here um i would say it's the ebcpl.library calendar so it's ebcpl.libcal.com or if it's easier just to call the library and that's 845-794-4660 extension 4 and that number again is 845-794-4660, extension 4. You're having these community conversations, and I applaud you because, you know, 
particularly now what's happening, sometimes those in certain parts of the community might not feel like they have a voice. And this is an opportunity to have a voice in a, in a conversation and also meet other people who might be feeling the way you do. You might feel alone and not feel like you can have a voice. And then you go to this meeting and find out other people that feel like you and of, and think the way you do. Yeah, and part of our, our written goal is to listen to each other non-judgmentally. And, you know, that's hugely important. And, and also to listen to each other with curiosity. Right. Yeah. So always, always starting as part of the non-judgment is starting with questions and trying to understand from someone else's perspective. And in which case, you know, you might end up finding out that there are other people uh, who think similarly to you who are not like you. Absolutely. We're talking to Judy Balaban and Adrian Jensen who are holding community conversations. It's as part of the Community for Equity and Justice, which is a subcommittee of SALT, and this is held at the Montessori Library. Second Thursday of every month it starts this Thursday at 6.30. Judy and Adrian, thank you so much for joining us on the program. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Robayo. Well, thank you, Patricio, for that report. And thank you, listener, for listening. Do keep listening right here on air, online at WJFFradio.org. Or ask your smart device, your smart speaker to play Radio Catskill. Also, sign up for the Local Edition podcast. Make sure you never miss any edition of the Local Edition. I've been your host, Jason Dole. I'll be back here with you tomorrow evening. We'll do it all over again on the Local Edition. Don't forget, Tim Bruno will be here with you 10 o'clock tomorrow morning for Radio Chatskill with more local news and conversations. You want to stay tuned. Coming up at 7, we've got Kusar Grace and the Music Emporium. Uh, and But before that, we've got The Daily. This is Radio Catskill. Your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. Keeping you connected.